Well, good morning. Um, it is my pleasure this morning to be able to introduce our guest preacher to you this morning. And I say he's a guest preacher, but he's really a guest preacher only in the sense that he's not me and he's not our associate pastor, Doug Davison, but he is not a guest here. He is one of us. Uh, Daniel Gilland is a realtor here in town with Remax Premier Realty. And he is a lot of other things around here. He is a youth leader at our youth Bible study. He is a community group leader here at our church. He is the person who leads the prayer group here at our church. He is an elder serving on the governing board of this church. So he's involved in a lot of different ways. He was a pastor for nearly 10 years in New York City at a a church called Community of Grace and then moved here to Florida. And he'll tell you a little bit more of that story later on, but I will tell you just a fun little story that happened recently. Um, I think it was three weeks ago today he was on this stage and he was the person who was doing the welcome and the announcements and the opening prayer. And then he got up here and he said, my name is Daniel Gilland and I, and he paused for like a second. And then he finished, he said, I'm one of the elders here at Good News Church and we welcome you here today. And I noticed that he paused, I didn't know why. And then he came up to me afterwards and he was like, Mario, do you know what I almost said? And I said, I know I don't, what do you almost say? He said, I almost said, my name is Daniel Gilland and I'm the executive pastor here at Community of Grace. <laughs> And I was like, well, and he was like, wouldn't that have been terrible? Like, well, yeah, if you welcome them all to a church they're not at, that would have been, that would have been bad. (laughs) And, uh, but he was saying, I I did that every single Sunday for almost a decade. Like I was just on autopilot, you know, and I had to switch it. And so anyway, um, I am thankful and grateful that you came to Florida and I am glad that you are here and a part of this church. And I I love and respect Daniel Gillen very, very much. And so I'm happy that he is going to be the one who preaches the word of God to us this morning. And so I'm gonna now ask you, would you please give like a rowdy good news welcome to one of your elders and your leaders in this church, <laughs> Daniel Gilman. So I can't promise I'm never gonna do that. Um, and if I do, you can throw tomatoes at me or something. I don't know why you'd have tomatoes with you to throw, but. Just in case. Just in case. All right, let's jump in. We're going to read our scripture this this morning. John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others, his disciples, were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of a large number of fish. The disciples, the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish that you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, 
Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, my words are worthless unless you do something with them. God, you have the words of life. God, we need that life this morning. We need your life in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls. God, to come and and lead us so that we can see you as we've never seen you before. God, would you open our eyes today to see you as we've never seen you before? God, we thank you. We thank you for who you are in the name of Jesus. Amen. So to start off with kind of a heavy kind of thought, I found personally that I think one of the hardest moments in life is when you come to the realization that you simply aren't who you thought you were. It's a hard place to be. I think it's also a pivotal place that we come to in our walk with God. And I don't think this is necessarily a Christian-only thing. I think this can happen to just about anybody to realize not who I thought I was. It was five years ago this month that I stood up in front of a church that I've been a pastor at for almost 10 years and told them that we're going to be closing our doors. The Community of Grace, um, a church that Jess and I both poured our lives into, poured our energy into, poured our hearts into, wasn't going to make it. And this wasn't a huge church by any means, 100, you know, 100-ish people, but 100-ish people on Manhattan's Upper West Side was not something to scoff at either. And we had beaten all the odds. We shouldn't have made it as long as we did, planning a new church in New York City. But of course, the question then is, okay, so what are you guys doing next? Where, where are you guys going? And we were like, Ocala? <laughs> Florida? Most people had never even heard of it. Oh, oh what? Orlando? No, not Orlando. Oh, Ocala. And so we did. We moved here. Um, I got my real estate license. My in-laws had a real estate team here for like 20, 25 years. And so I jumped in with them, began working with them. But the problem is, is that the only career I had ever known was ministering and shepherding churches and the people in those churches. We spent almost 10 years in New York City. Before that, five years in Atlanta as a campus minister there at Georgia Tech and Georgia State Universities. And before that, Florida State University where I was a campus pastor and also did my undergraduate work there as well. Go Seminoles, we're six and oh. Um, I had to say it. Ron got up here last week and said, go the other team. And 
so I felt like we needed balance today, so you're welcome. But that's where the crisis began for me, I was getting here. I didn't feel like a real estate agent. I was a pastor, right? That's who I was. I was a pastor. And people were very encouraging. No, 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 you'll always be a pastor. And it's very kind. And while I'm very pastoral in nature, if you don't have a church, you're not a pastor. And if anybody ever comes up to you and says, hey, I'm a pastor, but they don't have a congregation, just run the other direction very quickly. (laughs) Not only did I not have a congregation, but I didn't really know many people here either. It was hard. I was lonely, struggling. And this was the beginning of everything kind of unraveling for me in my life. And I was a Christian. I was following God the best that I knew how. And he was so gracious to me, and he's been so gracious to me, and I'm so thankful for that. But there was a truth that I was being forced to to wrestle with. I had 10 years of messages that I had preached, and now I'm going, "Ah, are those things real? I'm really struggling. I mean, they were so easy to preach then, right? But now I'm in this different place. Man, did I even believe those things? I was forced to come to the realization that my faith wasn't as deep as I thought it was, my trust in Jesus not as strong as I would have said, my commitment not as faithful as I'd honestly taken pride in. I was struggling with depression, which I'd never struggled with in my Christian life. I mean, you're a Christian, you're not supposed to be depressed, right? I mean, like, it doesn't come with Christianity. I'd been depressed before, like before I became a Christian, but not as a Christian. What was this all about? What was God doing? Why was he doing it? Things were going so well in New York, even though our church was closing, like we're seeing fruit, we're seeing people being saved. We're seeing, I mean, I'm, I'm walking in this gift. We've been talking about these gifts the last couple of weeks. I've been walking this gift like I've never known before. And God, you're just gonna yank me out of this? What is going on? One of the core values at our church in New York was value the journey. Value the journey. And that's the, that's the core value that everybody in our church knew better than any other value. In fact, if you ask people at our church, hey, what are the core values of the community of grace? They would say, it's value the journey. I don't, I don't know any other ones. <laughs> like That's the one they knew because it's a great value, right? We value the journey, that we're all broken. We're all walking this journey with Jesus the best that we can, and we're going to fail, and we're going to mess up, but God still loves us so deeply. It's a great value. But what happens when that journey takes a direction that we didn't expect it to go? What happens when we get to a crossroads and Jesus takes us the wrong way, or so we think? What do we do then? Where do we go? How do we get there? I titled this message, The Life We're Looking For, because at the end of the day, we're all on a journey with Jesus looking for the best life that we can have. And I believe that ultimately Jesus is taking us to that place in this life and the next. But sometimes we have to walk through stuff that's hard, walk down paths that we didn't want to go down. And so I want to take a look at the life of Peter this morning and talk about the unexpected journeys that Jesus takes us on and what happens when we do. 
And a quick warning, we read John 21 this morning. This is a part of a much larger story that if we were to read all of the scriptures that this kind of links to and points back to, we would just, that's all we'd be doing this morning is just reading those scriptures. So I'm gonna summarize a lot. I'm gonna kind of just hit on some stuff. If you really want those scriptures, I'm happy to give them to you after we're done here today. But just that's kind of how we're gonna kind of process and go forward with this. So number one, our journey with Jesus challenges how we view ourselves. Our journey with Jesus how, challenges how we view ourselves. When we think about the disciples, there's often one disciple that kind of stands out to us a lot of times, and that's Peter. He was one of the main ones that we read about in the Bible. Jesus kind of singles him out at one point and says, you know, Peter, this is my rock on whom I'm going to build my church. I mean, Jesus seems to kind of call him a leader. Um, and it's also his personality, though, as well. We kind of see he's, he's a little bit reckless. He's kind of impulsive. We've all known some of those leader types before. Maybe we've been some of those leader types before. But we see this in him, right? I mean, he's, you got, he's in a boat in the middle of a storm, and he sees Jesus walking across the water, and he stands up, and he's like, hey, if you were the Lord, why don't you go ahead and command me, and I will walk to you just like you're walking on the water. And so he does. He gets out of the boat, and he starts to walk on the water until he's not walking on the water anymore. And Jesus has to come and rescue him. But I mean, he's the only one that got out of the boat, right? It's kind of admirable when you really look at it. And we get this impression of Peter that he's really trying to prove himself over and over and over to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, look at me. Look at me, Jesus. Look what I'm doing for you. I'm your man. Look over here. I mean, it's a great moment. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, and Peter comes along, and he's like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't get to wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, I, I mean, Peter, if you're going to be part of me, I, I kind of have to wash your feet. And so, of course, Peter, because he's kind of an extreme character, he goes from this side to this side. Oh, well, okay, not just my feet then, but also my head and my hands as well. I mean, just impulsive. Peter's the one who rebukes Jesus. That's a pretty nice claim to fame right there. As part of this moment, Jesus says that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the scribes and the chief priests and be killed and raised, from the third, raised on the third day. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him, saying, Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. It's a bit bossy, a bit arrogant. And there's a night that comes, and the disciples, in Matthew 26, the disciples have partaken in the first Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in here in a little while. Not the first one, but a Lord's Supper. And afterwards, they go to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus says to the disciples, tonight, all of you will fall away because of me. It's a little bit heavy. And Peter jumps up and responds, though, even if everyone falls away because of you, I never will fall away. The other disciples are like right there. These clowns might fall away, but not me. I'm committed. I'm with you. But Jesus responds, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times tonight. But he really is a leader. I mean, even when he jumps up and says that, it says the other disciples jumped up and said the same thing, but he's the first one. He's this leader. And he's taken on this, this role, taken on this identity. And, and we see him, I mean, it kind of works out, right? He's the only one that actually tries to defend Jesus when they come to the, the garden to arrest him. And he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave. Uh, okay, 
all right. And then there's only one other disciple as Jesus is led away. It's Peter and one other disciple that follow to see what's gonna happen. I mean, there's a lot to admire with Peter. When we look at his record, there's a lot that he did, that he was committed to. He's got a pretty good resume. But let's follow Peter to this trial. John 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the, 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 the one known to the high priest, sorry, there we go, went out and spoke to the girl who was a doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the serv- servant girl, who was a doorkeeper, said to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. We'll jump to 20, verse 25 where they're standing around the fire still. They said to him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. This is great right here. One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. It's great, isn't it? I love it. Said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? He knows, I mean, he knows who he is. And Peter denies it again. Immediately, a rooster crows. In this moment, Peter is confronted with the fact that he's not who he thought he was. He's not who he thought he was. He's not as strong. He's not as faithful. He's not as courageous. He's not who he thought he was. It's a hard moment. And we see this in John 21 in the scripture that we started off with. This, this char, take charge leader, this one who's ready to jump in, he's back to his old career, fishing. And what's interesting about him being back at his old career fishing is what we're even told at the beginning of John 21 is that Jesus has revealed himself to the disciples before this. It tells us that this is the third time that Jesus is coming to those disciples. The first time, the disciples are in a locked room. Okay, the room is all locked, it's all barred up because they're afraid of what the Jewish leaders are, you know, could do to them. And Jesus shows up in this room. We don't know how he got in, but he's there. Might take some people off guard. Shows them his hands, shows them his, you know, his side where the sword went in. And he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He's commissioning the disciples to ministry. I'm sending you out just as the Father sent me out. Well, a week later, they're still locked up in a room and Jesus shows up to them again. Peace be with you. And now sometime after that, we find Peter and the guys hanging out. And Peter says, you know, I'm gonna go fishing. And the other disciples go, I think we're gonna join you. It's amazing, I love this. They don't know what to do. Jesus has commissioned them, but they, they don't know what to do. What, what, what do we do with our lives? I, I mean, we know how to fish, I guess. So let's go fishing. And, but apparently they're not even really good at fishing. Because I mean, have you noticed, like 
Every time they go fishing in the Bible, they don't catch anything unless Jesus is there. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what kind of fishermen they are. Maybe it was encouraging when in Luke 5, Jesus shows up and says, from now on, you're going to be catching people. Oh, thank God, because we're not catching anything out here. <laughs> and I love, I love the way that Jesus, he shows up in verse 5. And I love how he says this. He could have said this in so many different ways. Instead, he says, hey, you don't have any fish, do you? I love it. Jesus knows. He knows. And you kind of get this exasperated, no, no, we haven't caught any fish. And I think in this moment, even in this moment, it's funny. I think that's a funny scripture. But I think Jesus is already there challenging who they think they are. Didn't I tell you you're not fishermen? I told you guys. And that's when they realize, though, because Jesus says, hey, why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? And they catch this unimaginable amount of fish, and they can't even bring it in. And that's when, you know, Peter, the impulsive, doesn't even stay to help. He just jumps in the water and heads to shore. I love it. It's such a great story. And the other boats are not that far, and so they don't even try to pull the fish into the boat. They just drag it to the shore with them. And when they get out on the land, they see a charcoal fire there. Where else have we seen a charcoal fire? There's only two places in John where there's a charcoal fire. This one and the one we read about a second ago, where Peter denies Jesus three times. John's showing us something. He's taking us to a moment saying, remember this, remember what happened there. A little bit of foreshadowing. And Jesus invites them to sit down for breakfast. And when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, son of, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Breakfast just got a little tense. Do you love me more than these? So you remember, what are these? What is Jesus talking about here? If you remember Matthew 25, Peter standing up, hey, all these other clowns, like they might, they might stop following you, they might run away, but not me. Jesus is helping Peter to get honest about who he really is. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yeah, I love you, Jesus but he can't say he loves them more than these. He's just like them. He denied Jesus. He ran away. Just like the other disciples, he's abandoned Jesus as well. And Jesus asks again, this time leaving off the more than these, Peter, do you love me? And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? Jesus knows. He knows. And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. What a moment with Jesus. See, up until now, Peter can point back to his record. Look, Jesus, look how committed I have been to you. Remember when we walked on water, I was the only one who got out of the boat. And look at today, I'm the only one who jumped out of the boat to get to you, Jesus. Look at my record. I'm still your guy, right? Right, Jesus? You can count on me. But Jesus is challenging Peter and how he views himself. He's saying, Peter, I know that you love me, but there's something you love more than me. 
At a minimum, Peter, you, you love yourself more than you love me. What else do you love, Peter? What are the competing loves in your life that are competing with your love for me? And Jesus isn't really asking Peter to say, hey, do you love me, Peter? I need to know. He's showing Peter what he loves most. What is it that's in Peter's heart, really? Tim Keller, a pastor out of New York City who passed away not too long ago, he used to talk about this concept a lot called the sin behind the sin. And the idea of this was, you know, we have these actions that are sins, but behind that, there's a deeper motivation that lies within our hearts that's really driving that action that we look at as sin. And he talked about the fact that we can be doing all of the right things but with the wrong motivations in our hearts. And we might not even know it. Just like Jeremiah chapter 17 says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand? See, you can serve the poor, give all your money away, show up to the church every Sunday, be part of a small group, lead a small group, serve on Sunday mornings, sacrificing your time, sacrificing your money, and still be loving something other than Jesus when we do those things. In a trip back to New York a couple of years ago, I visited, there was a church that got planted out of the church that we closed down. And I went, got to visit the church, I was excited, but it was a bit painful as well. Number one, I walked in and I knew less than half the people there. Wow, they've really moved on, haven't they? But even more painful for me in that moment was realizing they didn't need me. They were doing just fine without me. Somewhere in my heart, I'd created a narrative. They still need me, right? I still have a place there, right? But they were doing just fine. They were doing great. They were doing better than when I was ever there. What was I really loving in that moment? Was it Jesus or was it myself? See, the thing about the beauty of this journey that we're on with Jesus is that he doesn't leave us where we are. He confronts us. He confronts our heart and asks us, what is it that you really love? James K.A. Smith has a quote that he turned into a book title, You Are What You Love. And he says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected spaces of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. He is the word who penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. To follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi, who teaches us how to love. Part of this journey that we're on with Jesus, he doesn't just challenge who we think we are. He changes who we are. He changes us. He heals us. He didn't just stop with challenging Peter. He heals He points us where we need to go. I love this Peter. 
in between the questions, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. You're not disqualified, Peter. Don't you think I saw who you were from the beginning? I knew, I knew everything. This whole denying me three times, I wasn't surprised, Peter. Remember I told you it was gonna happen. And what's so great about this is, I'm not gonna go there, but go read Acts 2. Go read the message that Peter preaches in Acts 2. It's fantastic to see how God changes Peter in that time. What is it in our lives that we've put our faith in over Jesus? What are those loves that have invaded our hearts that are competing with him? The great news is that Jesus is challenging us in those places. He's taking us there. He's coming to change us. But he doesn't just challenge how we view ourselves. He also, on our journey with Jesus, challenges how we view God. He challenges how we view God. The disciples and Peter, who do they really think that Jesus is? Right before Peter rebukes Jesus in Matthew 16, there's a passage, and Jesus asked them, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And he goes on to talk about the kingdom of God that's coming and what's loosed in heaven, you know, what's bound in heaven, we bound on earth. And it's right after that that Jesus again says, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem where you know, the elders and scribes and chief priests are going to take me and they're going to kill me and raise me on the third day. And it's right then when Peter says, oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Why does he say that? See, Peter has different expectations for who Jesus is. He's got different expectations. He grew up in a culture that said the Messiah is the person who's going to come and he's going to overthrow everything. Like, he's setting up the kingdom of Israel right here. I mean, Israel, we're not going to be oppressed by the Romans anymore. Like, the Messiah is coming, and he's going to deal with all of this in a physical kingdom here on earth. Peter and the other disciples have been looking at him that way. We even see the Pharisees have this in their minds as well. Luke 17, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, this is Jesus answering them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But they're all expecting Jesus to come and change this world that they're living in, to overthrow these kingdoms, to set up new governments. They're excited about that. But the problem is Jesus dies. What do we do now? Their view of who Jesus is is shattered. It's shattered. Wait a second, we thought this was the Messiah. God comes to challenge who we think he is. We all have these places in our lives. We've created a picture of God. We've created a picture of Jesus that isn't consistent with what the Bible tells us he is. And in order for us to see Jesus as who he really is, those expectations have to be shattered. For me, it came in the form of a lost job, a place that we had given so much up for, a home. It's gone. I can't tell you how many times I went to God that first year that we lived here in Ocala. God, what is going on? What are you doing? This just doesn't make sense to me. 
God shatters our views in all sorts of ways. Lost jobs, unexpected deaths, unanswered prayers, injustice that we see in the world, dreams crushed that we thought God was with us in. Peter, he's gonna be the Messiah's right-hand man in this revolution. He's ready to go. But Jesus dies. He's challenging who we think he is. But even in these questions that Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me? Peter, you're not disqualified. Even in that moment, Jesus is changing for Peter who he thinks God is. Peter thinks he's disqualified. He thinks he's out. He thinks he's done this sin that is so unforgivable that he can't even you know, follow Jesus anymore. I can't do what you've called me to do. I can't go be a fisher of men like you've said. And instead, he encounters a God that's more gracious, that's more compassionate, that's more loving, that's more forgiving than he could ever have imagined. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. In July of 2018, I was talking with a friend who asked, he said, so how much longer do you think you guys are going to stay in New York City? It's always the question people ask. How much longer? I mean, that place is crazy. How much longer are you guys going to be there? And I said, honestly, I think we're going to die here. It's July of 2018. In December of that same year, all of our stuff was in a storage unit just down the road from here. That journey comes at you fast, sometimes. And you have your own stories as well of journeying with Jesus, where he's taken you, what he's done, how he's changed you, and how he's changed your view of him as well. And if you're new to this journey with Jesus, or maybe you're in the middle of something that you're really wrestling with, maybe you're on the verge of this season and you don't even know it yet. What I can tell you is that the life you're looking for is on the other side of it. There's a beautiful savior that's there. He's waiting. And he's there to change our hearts. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. There's a savior that's more beautiful and better than we could possibly imagine. And it can seem a little bit harsh that he'd come and challenge us in these ways sometimes. But he does it because he wants us to see him for who he really is and therefore see ourselves who we really are as well. Let's pray. Jesus, what a good and gracious God and Savior you are. Jesus, I thank you that you don't leave us in the mess. God, honestly, the mess that we create for ourselves so much of the time, you don't leave us there. God, when we're not seeing correctly, you're so gracious to come. And in your kindness, Lord Jesus, your word says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, you take us where we need to go. And God, we don't always want to go there. But God, you know what's best for us. You know what we need to see. You know how we need to change. I thank you, God, that you are so much more committed to us than we are to you. God, thank you for your faithfulness, your love, your heart, your glory, your beauty that you show us every day that we are so undeserving of.
Jesus, I pray that we would all just see more of you every day, every day of our lives. God, we would see more and more and more of your infinite beauty and grace and love. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus, amen.